All right, well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, uh, let's turn to Psalm 54. Psalm 54. The book of Psalms is the second book in what are commonly known as, as the area in your Bible called the Songs of Poetry or Wisdom. They start at the book of Job. They, they go straight through to the book of the Song of Solomon. They are important for a number of reasons, but the, the poetic books make a couple of ex, uh, uh, presumptions about you. A, that you are interested in walking better with the Lord today than you did yesterday. And B, they are written in the present tense, which means that, that the address that you get from the Lord through these poetic books they, they speak to your everyday walk. Oh, there's, there's prophecy there that looks forward. There, there, there's history in them that looks back. But, but the majority and the distinctiveness of them is that they, they look around, that they're, they're interested in you. So when you get to the, the book of Psalms, for example, it's almost like listening to other people's prayers. It's like you're eavesdropping, right? And, and because you get the backgrounds on a lot of the Psalms, you also get the, the, the settings or the context in which they were written. So you can be with David in his distress. You can be with Asaph in his joy. You can be with Solomon in Psalm uh, 72 or 127, I think, are the two that he wrote, in his desire to receive wisdom from the Lord. David wrote almost half the Psalms. 73 of them, I think, are ascribed to David. Moses wrote one. A fellow named Ethan wrote one. Uh, a lot of the sons of Korah wrote them. They were a Levitical family. You remember the sons of Korah? Korah was that guy that got all upset with, with Moses for being in charge, you remember? And he complained and got a couple hundred guys together and they complained. And, and, and Moses did smart stuff. He went to the Lord and said, they're complaining. And the Lord said, I'll take care of them. The next morning he told everybody to get away from his tent, you remember? And the earth swallowed them up. And then 250 people died when the fire from the Lord just kind of, you know, set them ablaze. And pretty much the complaining stopped for a while. But... <clears throat> The kids of Korah, Korah tur turned out, like I said, much better, much more faithful. And so they became uh, singers, and, and there's a bunch of uh, uh, 10 or 11, 15 or 12 psalms, something like that, uh, attributed to them. Great places to come and learn, right? To learn of, of your walk with the Lord. Uh, and that's where the focus is. I think some of the psalms will, will set your heart on fire, and others of them will get you dancing, and then there'll be others that you read, and you go, man, that's exactly how I feel. And you look to find out how it was written and, and what prompted someone to, to cry out to the Lord. But, but you, you will find throughout the Bible, when, when people are in trouble, they turn to the psalms. And you'll find them quoted a lot. I think 186 times the, the psalms are quoted in the New Testament. In fact, Psalm 110, and you can go look at it yourself if you like, um, is the most quoted verse in the New Testament, more than any other single chapter of the Old Testament. But, you know, when, when Jonah was in the belly of the whale, guess what he was quoting? Psalms. And Jesus in the upper room, and Jesus in Golgotha, in the, he quoted them there. Peter on Pentecost included them in his first sermon. Paul, summarizing the, the work of the Holy Spirit, turned to the Psalms a lot. So the Psalms are important, and they are, they are personal, and they are for today, I think. So um, I wanted to spend you know, our time to, tonight with one Psalm. It's all of seven verses. You're going to learn this one well. But most of the Psalms, many of them, 
have superscriptions. By that I mean the little introductory little paragraph before verse 1. That tells us a lot about the context in which those psalms were written. When you have those, it's a bonus, right? Because now you can not only know these are God's words, but we know where they were, where, where they were developed, how come they came about, and what prompted them to be written. And so tonight, and, and we can look at the superscription here that, that uh, we find. Notice it says, this is written to the chief musician with stringed instruments. It is a contemplation of David when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, is David not hiding with us? And tonight, like most psalms with introductions, I'd like to spend 90% of our time on that superscription. <laughs> I want you to get the layout for how it was written and why. And when you get that, then the psalm, the seven verses, make a lot of sense. Until you get that, I think you can take it wherever you want, and you may very well miss the boat when it comes to what the Lord would want to say to us about betrayal. So tonight we're going to talk about being betrayed by people that we care for. Ever happened to you? How many of you have ever been betrayed? Okay, if there isn't enough for you, I'm changing the subject. Okay, good. I'm glad to see that. Now, this song was written by David on the subject of betrayal. There are two noticeable and notable betrayals by David in his life. One was by these folks, the Zipites, which happened to be the tribe of Judah, his own family. Another by a group of people that he risks his life to save, and they will turn on him and go to Saul as well. So David, in, in a short period of time, in, in a matter of weeks, is really burned by two different groups. Imagine you putting yourself in the line of fire to save someone, and they betray you. And then you go home to your family, and they betray you as well. And yet the Lord says to you, you're blessed, David. He goes, really? I, I certainly can't tell. And how do you deal with betrayal? How do you handle being betrayed? There are very few things in our life that are, are more difficult, I think, than being betrayed. It happened to Julius Caesar. You might remember the story at a time when all of Rome thought that Julius Caesar was the guy. He had power in his grasp, and literally everyone loved the guy. He was uh, liked by almost every commoner, certainly. The only people that didn't like him was the Roman Senate, the aristocracy, and they didn't like him because the political reforms that Julius Caesar brought to the table affected their power. Eventually, a conspiracy was formed by these political big shots, and they decided that they would kill Julius Caesar, especially after someone came to the Senate and convinced them that Julius secretly had planned to make himself king. And so they weren't going to put up with that, and, and we're going to take this guy out. All of the people that are involved historically in his death were people that were absolutely indebted to Caesar. He got them their jobs. He spoke up for their, for their, for their character. He, he supported them in their weakness. He, he provided money when they were poor. Literally everyone who, who ran a knife into this guy uh, were indebted to him one way or the other. So when they decided in their conspiracy to kill him, they said, we will all stab him alone so we can all share in his death. Plutarch, who was the writer of that time, <clears throat> recorded that Julius tried to fend off the blows of everyone who uh, came after him with a knife, knife until it came to Brutus. <laughs> you remember that guy, right? Brutus, who 
And, and, and Julius looked at him in his brokenness and he said, et tu brute, you too, you're a part of this as well? Words that were immortalized by Shakespeare in Mark Anthony's soliloquy, where he said of Brutus, who, by the way, was his favorite disciple, if you will, the guy that he had taken under his wings, raised from a little kid. But Mark Anthony said, as he spoke about his being killed by Brutus, it was the unkindest cut of all. That was the the, the fancy quote, right, from Shakespeare. I only remember that because I remember I had to take English lit as a subject, and I hated it then, but I'm kind of glad I took it now. Um, So we call the study tonight the unkindest cut of all, because really, betrayal tends to be that. I don't know if you've ever been abandoned by someone or rejected by them or or you find yourself betrayed. You know, we we do a lot of marriage counseling at the church, invariably a spouse that cheats upon his husband or wife. There's very little to do that you can help someone that feels betrayed other than to convince them that God's faithful. (laughs) You know, that when man fails you, God will not. But, But it is such a difficult kind of hurt to deal with, you know, to, to, to help ourselves through. If you have a child that, that pulls away or isolates himself from his parents, you know, or you have a good friend that, that you've always confided in, but when it came right down to it, they, they kind of bail out on you and they, or you can, you know, you trust them with information and they turn on you and, 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 and you're left alone. People tend to say things like, I'll never trust anyone again, right? Cause I've been burned and I've been hurt. Well, that's exactly where you find King David, or let's just call him young King David. He's not a king yet, other than the Lord told him he would be one one day. And we find him in a position where he has to trust the Lord through these hurts and discover this lesson. God is always faithful. And I think maybe the the biggest answer in in all of these things, and we'll get it in the last few verses, is, is that God's always dependable. So you shouldn't carry and apply to God in your relationship what you learn from people, right? We always like to imprint God with, with manly things, right, or earthly things. can't do that with God. He's, he's more faithful than you are to your relationship with him. Now, here's the background of, of David's experience that are, is written here at the beginning. David was a, a young guy that... Saul recognized as having been anointed by God. God had told David through the prophet Samuel that he would be king one day. David had had started coming to the palace of Saul, uh, singing, blessing, even leading some of the armies out in battle. He became very popular fairly quickly. Saul um, was jealous. He was angry. He didn't take it very well. And it really doesn't, and it wasn't long before David was up there playing, and they were throwing javelins. You know, he's throwing javelins at him, trying to pin him to the wall. Imagine being a worship leader, and people are shooting at you. That was David's job, right, for Saul. And and at some point, David realized that this wasn't going to last very long. And and his buddy Jonathan, Saul's son, came to David, and he said, Look, we're at dinner tonight, and Dad said he's going to kill you. Until until you're dead, nothing else matters to him. This is going to be his goal. And, And indeed it was for the next seven and a half years of David's life, kill David. That was it, kill David. He went home that night to his wife, Michelle, who said, hey, I had a dream tonight. And David said, what was that? She said, I dreamed that the men of Saul surrounded the house. And they they swore an oath that by morning, they were going to have you dead. So you shouldn't stay around here either. And so David, young guy, young guy, panics. 
You know, everything that the Lord had done with them, great. But I can't say, here, I'm going to die. So he gets what amounted to 600 men who had begun to make their allegiance to David. They would become his mighty men. But for now, they were all kind of rats that deserved to be in prison and, you know, ne'er-do-wells, you know. And they gathered to David, and David began to teach them the things of the Lord. And he heads out of town to a place called Nob, just a couple of miles outside of town, where, where the tabernacle stood and, and where the priest was. And he said, do you have any food? We're, we're on the run, you know. Actually, he didn't tell them he was on the run. We're on a mission is what he told the priest. Uh, we'd like the food. And he convinced them to give him the showbread, which normally wasn't eaten by, you know, anyone but the priest. But, you know, as Jesus said, human needs, you know, outweighs, if you will, tradition. So they gave him the food. David said, do you have any uh, uh, weapons here and he said well yeah we got Goliath's sword remember you killed him you put it here yeah I'd like to have that as well he took this big old sword and then he ran because he's nervous and he runs he runs outside of Israel's uh, you know city limits and, and, and borders and he runs to Gath one of the powerful Philistine cities which isn't a smart place to go because that's where Goliath was born so now here's the guy who killed Goliath with Goliath's sword walking around well, that didn't last very long. Hey, that's the guy. Well, they arrest David. They tell him that we're going to go get the king. And David, sure, he's done. He's cooked. Right? So he sits in this prison waiting to be or hear, have a hearing. And he thinks to himself, I've got to be nuts to come here. Maybe if I act nuts, the king will let me go. So he started acting nuts. He started to spit up on himself. He ran headlong into the into the wall and knocked himself silly. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. Well, the king came and looked, took one look at David and went, yeah, he's nuts. Just get him out of here. He's just crazy. And David gets away. And he takes his guys and he heads back home to Israel. And, and as he's heading back to the caves of Abdullam, he feels horrible. God has blessed David. David knows the Lord well. He's a young, godly man, and he says this to the Lord, I'll never do that again. I do not know what I was thinking, putting my trust in me, rather than in you. You said I'll be king, you can protect me. I, I won't put myself in harm's way, but I will never again rely on my own resources to, to get me out of a, a, a jam or out of a difficulty. And so he meets with these men in this cave. He, he, he swears to the Lord in front of these guys, this isn't the way do, we do you know, walk with God. He writes Psalm 34. You can go write it down or look at it, if you will, yourself. But that's the subject of his sorrow over uh, the fact that he had done this thing. Well, the very next chapters of 1 Samuel, chapter 23 and 24, are what we read in this psalm. Actually, mostly chapter 23. It is David being betrayed twice. Chapter 24 is he gets a chance to kill Goliath. To kill Saul in that cave. You know, remember that story, right? Where Saul goes into sleep and there's 600 guys watching him. And they encourage him to kill David. And David, he's true to form. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to trust the Lord. I won't lay my hand on his anointed. Well, in between the, the Gath story and, and, and Saul in the cave is this story of, of this betrayal that you find here. And, and the lesson is pretty clear and it's pretty straightforward. Can I love my enemies and trust the Lord to give me deliverance. So David is home. He's hiding in a cave. Saul is out to get him. News comes to David, of all people, that there is a city named Keilah. 
And it is in the lowlands of Judah, just north and west, of, if you know the map at all in your head, of Hebron. And it's a walled city. The people take their wheat, and they took it up to the, the neighboring mountains where their threshing floor was. They, they beat the wheat, right? And the, the chaff blows away, and the people get to eat. So that was their, their, their substance, if you will. But the Philistines were the big enemies of the day. So they, they'd lay in wait. People would prepare their food, and the Philistines just take it from them. And so the people were starving. And David, being a true king who loved God and loved his people, hears that that is going on. And David goes to pray because David now had just swore to the Lord, I'll never do it on my own. He goes to inquire to the Lord, 1 Samuel 23, verse 2. And, and he says this to the Lord, Should I go and deliver the people of Keilah, our, our Jewish family, from these Philistines? And the Lord, through the, through the priest, uh, Abiathar said through, with the Uman and the Thum, yes, go and I will protect you. I'll deliver them into your hand. Now, while David is praying, you should know that Saul, in his anger at someone helping David, has gone to Nob, that place where the priest was, uh, Abimelech, with, with all of the people and where he'd gotten the food and the sword. And he had gone to them and he had killed 85 priests for, quote unquote, helping David out. But that wasn't enough for Saul. He went into the town of Nob and killed everything that moved. Men, women, children, animals, slaughtered them out. Said, don't you ever help David again. So there's, there's the mood, right? But Abiathar, one of the sons of Abimelech, had gone and, and went with David. And so David goes to the priest and says, ask the Lord, should we go fight? And the Lord says to David, go fight. And, and, and I'll deliver them. And David, true to form, he's learned a lot, is willing now to go risk his neck to save his people, even though, you know, he's kind of on the chopping block with Saul, who is, is not a guy that loves him, wants him dead, has murdered tons of people, even to threaten those who might help David. So David's the, the true king, isn't he? His heart is, is certainly to serve. And he goes to, like I said, asks Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, he is told to go and to fight. And so... He says to his men, 600 of them, come on, we're going to go defend the city of Keilah, God's people. The Lord has told me he'll be with us. His men, who are just learning to walk with God, say this. Yeah, you know, the last time we went with you, Bella almost got killed, you know, and you said, maybe we just stay here. What if we get there and, and the Philistines are on that side and Saul comes up from behind and, and we're cooked. I think it's a bad idea, David. And David, very kindly wanting to teach these guys, says, all right, would you come with me and let's go pray and ask the, the Lord again with the priest. And he gets a, a prayer meeting together with the priest, and he says in front of all of his men, ask the Lord again, should we go? And, and the answer came back. The Lord said, yes, and he'll deliver them into your hand. And, and the men with David, you know, to their credit, said, all right, if that's the Lord, then we're going to go with you, even though we're a little worried about it. But David is teaching these young men about walking with the Lord, and he's doing good. So he re-inquires of the Lord, and he prays and he teaches them about waiting upon the Lord. Off they go. They go to the battle. They, they deliver the people. The Philistines are pushed back. The folks get their food back. David's a hero. It's another town that's been saved. They have a king that actually serves them, and people couldn't be more excited. And then in verse 7 of First. Samuel 23, 
someone tells Saul that David has gone to Keilah, a walled city, and he is there fighting the Philistines. And Saul, deluded in mind, says, All right, the Lord is helping me to catch this guy. We're going to surround the city. He's going to be able, unable to get out. Once and for all, I'm going to eliminate this guy. He's an embarrassment to me. You know, he's stealing my thunder and my place and my honor from the people. And I'm, going to, I'm just going to take him out. So he, he believes God is at work helping him to find and eliminate David. He even sends back to the people in Keilah and said, Oh, God is using you. <laughs> Idiot. Nutcase. Out of his mind. But I always learned watching Saul and guys like him that you have to be careful how you, interpret it, how you interpret things in your life because when you're walking with God, you can interpret things well. You can say all things work together for good. You know, God meant this for good. But, but though God will use things for good, you can bring a lot of harm into your life by just not walking with him. Then you, have, you don't have that assurance, right? Like Saul's way off here. God doesn't want David dead. God's going to raise David up. But you'll never know if the circumstances are really from the Lord or not unless you're walking with the Lord. Well, here's the deal. David now hears from somebody, Saul's coming from Jerusalem. Not that far. He says to the Lord as he begins to pray, because remember, First Samuel 21 22, David learned his lesson in Gath. I will pray. I will not move without asking you. I'm going to trust you first. He goes to the priest. He says, ask the Lord if we're safe here or will these people turn us in? And, and, and he prays, and I don't know what he expected to hear, but the priest said, the Lord says, these people will rat you out. Yeah, but I just helped them. I saved their life. I brought them the food. Yeah. But you're not the threat. Saul is. And, and, and they will turn on you in a minute. If push comes to shove, they're going to throw you over the wall. And David, well, then I can't stay here. And so he takes all 600 of his men. He vacates the town. He doesn't want the fight to come inside the walls where people will die. And David hurt, I'm sure betrayed, if you will, heads with his people away so that Saul's anger can't catch up. He heads for the Judean wilderness, hot like Death Valley. I know one day X and the guys will be down in Engedi. Sometimes in May it's really hot. It is usually really hot there before anywhere else. There are lots of caves and lots of ravines. It's, it's by the Dead Sea. That should tell you something, right? Uh, David writes Psalm 63 as he runs from this Keilah place away from Saul. So he, I'm just telling you the psalm so that you'll see a lot of these things go together so you can learn you know, the, the heart of, of, of God's man and what he was going through. He heads As he heads in that direction... 15 miles south and east of Hebron, he enters into the boundaries of the tribe of Judah. That's his tribe. He goes uh, into a place uh, in the woods called Ziph. It's like the national park. It would be a, be a place he'd, he'd grown up, run around as a kid, threw rocks at squirrels, you know. He just liked that place. He knew all about it. He knew the ins and the outs. It was a safe place because he knew the streets, right? He, he knew the neighborhood. So Saul's son comes to David. He knows he's there. And he says, hey, look, I know my dad's nuts. And I also know that God's for you. So David, I know, I know you're running like crazy, but you should just relax. God's going to take care of you. You're going to be king. God never lies to you. And when you're king, I'm going to be right beside you. I know, and, and my father knows too, that this is God's calling upon your life. But 
you know, for now, just kind of keep your eyes open. And David settles in there. He feels like, gosh, I finally found a place that I can rest. While he is staying in the National Park, the Ziphites, remember we just read about them here in the introduction, decide that this would be a great way to curry favor by Saul, with Saul by turning in their buddy David. And they send a messenger to Saul. And again, First Samuel 23, they said what we read here, is not David with us in the stronghold in the woods? And he even described just a place a little south of Jeshimon. They give him a, a marker, turn right at the light and green and, 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 and black, you know, to go left at the, the rock, wherever. There he is. Saul does this. He says, oh, bless you and bless the Lord for you being God's vessels to help me catch this wrath. But remember, he's missed him twice now. He's embarrassed. He's, he's, he's a little bit, you know, he, does, he wants to have a good name and he's looking like a fool. So he writes back to these Ziphites and said, all right, I'm coming, but I want you to track him. So when I get there, there's no, you're not in doubt as to where he is. You'll know exactly where he is and we'll grab him and, and that'll be the end of it. But just keep an eye on him so he doesn't get away. David portrays it again as, as, you know, the people are loyal to him. Nothing could have been further from the truth. Again, David hears about the betrayal. Someone comes and says, by the way, a guy from the town went to see Saul yesterday and ratted you out. And he's coming with hundreds of guys to kill you. And David goes to the Lord and he says, my own people, my family, my buddies, my friends, the neighborhood guys. And the Lord said, yep, they, they just want the blessings of Saul. And they're willing to turn you in as a result. David gets up and he runs away. Saul, it turns out, is on his heels. It's kind of like you go around the mountain, he comes the other way, and it's they almost clash, and they almost, and David's like breathing hard, you know? And God intervenes. He sends someone to Saul who says, you got to come back with the army right now. We're under attack in the south. If you don't come now, we're going to lose a city to the Philistines. And Saul goes, i got to quit chasing David. He bails. And he leaves David, and David for, for the next little while goes, oh, I got a break. Almost got caught. And he writes this song, Psalm 54. Just as a point of reference, this is extra, this is bonus. First Samuel 26, two chapters later, the Ziphites get another chance to rip David off. And guess what they do? They do it again. He got burned by them twice. So this is the psalm that David writes when Saul is taken away at the last minute and he's been betrayed by the Keilah people and the Ziphites, his own countrymen. And he has made a vow to the Lord a couple of chapters early to say, I'm never going to walk away from you again or try to do it in my own strength. Nor do I want these guys to learn anything but to trust you. He writes this in verse 1. Save me, O God, by your name and vindicate me by your strength. 
The first way that David dealt with betrayal was to fall on his knees. If you're being betrayed, I'll tell you this. Start praying first. Before you say anything, before you get even, before you get mad, pray. In the Old Testament, God reveals himself to men by many names. But there are three that are used more often than any others. The, the one that is used the most is the word for Yahweh or Jehovah. It is probably Yahweh over Jehovah just because there aren't any just sounds in Hebrew. But in, regardless, when God wants to use a name that communicates to you that he keeps his word, that he's the God of covenants, that he makes deals, you can, you can shake on it and he'll, he'll do it. He uses the name Yahweh or Jehovah, calls himself that. So you, when you use that name, you think about God keeps his word. The second name that is used most often in the Old Testament of God revealing himself is the word Elohim. And when God uses that name of himself, it is a name that speaks of him being the creator of everything. So he's in charge. He's made everything, right? He's in charge of everything. He's all powerful in that regard. He's not only a God who keeps his word, he's a God who created. And then the third and the third most often used name for the Lord in Hebrew in the Old Testament is Adonai. And the, the term Adonai just means Lord. Or you're the boss, I'm not, applesauce, right? You're the boss, applesauce. You're in charge. You're the Lord, I'm not. You're the Lord. Remember Peter when he had that vision from heaven to go to Cornelius's house and, and there's that voice that said, rise up, kill and eat. Peter said, not so, Lord. It's inconsistent. You can't say not so to the Lord. If he's the Lord, you say, yes, sir. Aye, aye, captain, right? So, Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai. Or if you like, well, if I'll give you three M words. Mediator, maker, and master. Mediator, maker, and master. Those are the three that are used most often. David uses all three of those names in this very short psalm to speak to the Lord about his situation. He starts with the word Elohim in verse 1. Save me, creator of all things, by your name. By your name. You're the one who's made everything. Certainly, the creator of all can handle the betrayer of men. And he asked the Lord in verse 1 that he could be, by his power, vindicated by the strength of the Lord. The word vindicate means to prove that there is nothing to, to blame someone with. Right? It, it means to, there was nothing in you that caused this concern. It is always harder to pray for deliverance when, when most of the trouble you're facing you've brought on yourself. Right? That guy's trying to kill me. Why? Because I tried to run him over in a car. Okay. Kind of your fault. But if you haven't done anything, you've been a godly man. And go back in the historical books. David has always gone out of his way to serve Saul. He's been faithful and honest. He's risked his not life and his neck to be a, a, a soldier, if you will, to be a servant. He did the same thing by those people in Kilah. And so he, he says to the Lord, vindicate me. This guy's after me. He wants to wipe me out. People are getting the wrong idea about me. But by your strength, deliver me from that understanding. He says in verse 2, here's his need. Oh, hear my prayer, O God, and give ear to the words of my mouth. The threat of Saul and how pressured David, I'm sure, as a young man felt, 
had driven David to his knees. In other words, the circumstances had, had put him on his face. Right? And David turns to the Lord because, let's face it, he's got nowhere else to turn. He turned to people he delivered from death, and they turned on him. He went home to his own family, they turned on him. There was really nowhere to go. So he is, he is almost forced in, in that difficulty to turn to the Lord. He had learned in Achish's castle in Gath, that was the name of the guy, to not trust in himself. So he calls upon the Lord. I always find it very interesting that, that, that God seems to get our most full attention when we need him. I know that's a, a generalization and maybe an obvious statement, but it isn't always so obvious, right? You're good at praying when you have need. You're good at skipping church when all is well. I want to go to church tonight. No, man, I'm going to the ball game. Unless you're hurting. I guarantee you that ball game you're going to, if you lost your job that day, hey, I'm going to church for prayer. Need has a way of pushing you in the right direction, right? The rough spots in your life are, are so that your thoughts can be cleared and, and you can turn to the Lord. So David says, by your name, save me and vindicate me. By your, your help, strengthen me, God. I hear my cry. He says in verse 3 about his enemies, strangers have risen up against me and oppressors have sought to take my life. And they haven't set God before their eyes or before them. Now I want you to notice, J David calls his fellow tribesmen from Judah strangers. In his heart, young man, it was unthinkable to him that they would ever turn against him. Your family. Supposed to stick up for me no matter what. What are you doing making a call to Saul and trying to get in good with him? They were strangers to David now. They were strangers to the will of God who had, had been made clear. And by the way, you should know that everyone in that culture in that day knew God had chosen David to be king. This wasn't a secret. This was known by the tribes. No one except for, for part of Judah and, and part of Benjamin will even acknowledge him for seven and a half years until Saul was dead. But everyone knew. So they were strangers in their kindness to David, but they were also strangers in their relationship with God. He calls them here in verse 3, oppressors. The word oppressor in Hebrew literally means someone that is ruthless in their behavior. Or there's no checks and balances. There's no, there's no filter, if you will. These were guys who were rubbing their hands together in anticipation of Saul's favor. But in order to get his favor, they were going to have to watch David die. Or at least be arrested. Oh, I can't hardly wait. Ruthless guys. Oppressors, right? Terrible. Come, in fact, if you read 1 Samuel 23, I think it's verse 20, it was a smelly verse. It says, O king, come and do whatever your heart requires or whatever is in your soul. Come down and we'll deliver him into your king's hand. You come and do to him whatever you want. We're going to turn him over. And the king went, all right. And they went, all right. And David went, oh, no. Saul wanted cold-blooded murder because he was threatened by a faithful man, David, who had always treated him with, with honor and respect. And the Ziphites, they just wanted the blessing of Saul. They didn't want the blessings of God. David understood, and I think it's wise if you've been, you know, a victim of, of, of being, people being disloyal and, 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 and the difficulty that comes with that, 
to realize that a lot of times that happens when people don't know the Lord, when they don't, they don't factor him into the, into the relationship that they have with you, right? That there's, that there's not any kind of loyalty in their heart for the Lord. And so if there isn't a, lo- a loyalty to the Lord, there's not going to be a, a loyalty, if you will, to you. He viewed their behavior and these betrayers, verse 3, as men who didn't have God guiding their lives. Look, Jonathan said to him in the, in the woods, I know God wants you to be king. He said to him, my dad knows it too. In chapter 24, 1 Samuel, when David finally lets Saul walk out of the cave without killing him and yells it to him when he crosses over the, you know, the, the valley, Saul says through tears, I know God wants you to be king. When you become king, don't hurt my family. Take care of them. And, and David would. Everyone knew. But their behavior was such that they didn't want the Lord. They wanted Saul's blessings. They didn't care for God's best. They cared for man's best. So, look, David prays in the name of the Lord. He prays out of his needs. He prays against the nature of his enemies. And the first step to betrayal is always prayer. And so you end verse 3 with the word selah which literally means to breathe or to rest. It is commonly believed by most scholars that this was a a rest word in terms of music, but it is used by the Lord in terms of the poetry to say, before you move on, think about this. You know, they're not walking with God. They don't have him in view. This is what they think, and this is why you've been betrayed. So don't take it personal so much because it's an issue between them and the Lord. You're just the collateral damage in that in that spot well having prayed david then goes from supplication prayer to sermonizing because he ends these this short little psalm in four verses with giving us some wisdom on what we can do when we've been betrayed by people we've made great sacrifice for though we're not necessarily close to or when we've been betrayed by family that should that we would hope would prefer us over somebody else he says this in verse 4, behold, and behold in Hebrew is much like to behold in the New Testament in the Gospels. Whenever you see the Lord saying behold, it's kind of like stop whatever you're doing and take a look at this. Or this is an oddity, you should take a look right away, right? It's, it's a very specific word that means pay attention. Wait till you see, check this out. That's what it would mean. So he stops by saying, David, I've been betrayed, but behold, God is my helper. Or if you want, People may let me down, but I have a very reliable God. And tonight, you have a very reliable God. God has never betrayed you, ever. You've probably betrayed him a lot. He's never betrayed you. He has always been there. And even when I betray his love, he doesn't betray his love for me. David could write that because in two chapters earlier, he was spitting, on him, spitting up on himself and running headlong into a wall, so he bled. This was the king of Israel. This was kind of shameful. But David wasn't trusting the Lord. He was trusting in David. And yet God restored him, and God went before him. So, God is my helper, and the Lord is with those who would uphold my life. Or, if you will, those who realize that this is his will for my life to be the king. He's with those 600 men who call me captain, but, it is, but he's the Lord. The Lord, verse 4, Adonai, Adonai. He's in charge of everything. He's in charge. He'll be at work. He, he will take care of me. 
while the betrayers were briefing Saul, his son was encouraging David in the woods. He's going to be a righteous God. So here's something to think about. My God is reliable. Second of all, I have a righteous God that I serve. Verse 5. He will repay my enemies for their evil. And he will cut them off in his truth. Look, David was a warrior in every sense of the word. I don't know a place in the Bible where David had to fight where he goes, no, I'm a little nervous. This guy was a tough guy. He didn't walk away from a fight. He trusted God. He, he, he fought, you know, a lion with his bare hands and a slingshot to protect sheep. He took on a 10-foot guy who no one wanted to fight. He was a tough guy. He, he would, you know, mix it up with anyone. Without hesitation, he would fight. But he would never lift his hand against God's people. That was a fight he couldn't take on, right? He wouldn't put himself in that position. So he says in verse 5, and again, he learned it in you know, chapter 21 and 22 of 1 Samuel. I can't do this. This is God's issue. I know that the Lord will, will repay my enemies. I know that the Lord will deal with those who've been being evil to me. I'm not going to deal with it, but he can. No matter how far removed from God they were, David was going to let God work it out. And in that next chapter, chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, he let Saul walk out of a cave, right? You know the story. And you know that, that there were 600 guys that David had been teaching that said to David, whispering in that cave. And by the way, can you go to sleep with 600 eyes, 1,200 eyes on you? Have you ever been in a car and you look over and you just knew someone was looking at you and then they're looking at you? Like, I mean, you get that weird sense, right? Not Saul. He's, just a, he's out, man. But here's what David's mighty 600 men said. They said, David, remember the Bible study we had yesterday? And you told us that the Lord would deliver this guy into our hands. Ta-da! You are a great study teacher. Look at he's right there. Go kill him. And David got his sword, and, and he sweating and excited. No more running, no more hiding. This is no more dying. And he gets up there, and the only thing that stops him is his conscience. And his conscience says... What? I promised the Lord I wouldn't take it in my own hands. Cuts off part of his robe, can't slit his throat. Comes back to the guys, and you know the guys were razzing him. These were bad dudes. David, if you feel bad, let me do it. I'll kill him. I got nothing. I got no problem. I killed others. I can kill him. This is the Lord. Man, it's so good to pray. And David has to restrain him. Let's let God do this. And understand, for seven and a half years from now, David's still running. And you just know it, year four, some dude went, told you. You should have let me kill him. Here we are, like 48 months away to go. David's got to let him live. Oh, Mr. David. Oh. Or year five or year six. You ain't getting your, you know, these guys started with nice hair. Now they got hair like me. And they're still running. Not good. But he says this, I have a reliable God and I have a righteous God. God is going to, he's going to balance the book. So often when we're betrayed, we want to get even, right? We want to lash out. We want to balance the books. Really a bad idea. God does that far better than you will, right? You'll get your pound of flesh, but really, is that what you want? Or do you want the blessings of God? So David, though he'd been hurt by family and friends, if you will, he, he, he's going to leave it with the Lord. The Lord is, is righteous. You repay, Lord. You cut off the wickedness by your truth. And then as a result, in verse 6 and 7, 
he says this, so I'm free now to worship you, to sacrifice to you, to praise your name, Lord, for it is good. You've delivered me out of all of my trouble. My eyes will have seen its desires upon my enemies. He says in verse 6, because I know that my God is reliable and righteous, I'm free to sacrifice. I, I am no longer under the pressure of getting even and fighting back or, or figuring it out. I'm just free to worship God. The free sacrifice or the free will offering in the Old Testament was designed so that anyone could come to the Lord at any time, day or night, for any reason. They weren't tied to sin offerings. They weren't tied to specific payment for sin. They were just to allow you to come and hang out with God. Bring as much as you want, bring as little, bring a pigeon, bring a, bring a, a calf, you know, bring a lamb. It was all about you just being gracious and, God, you're so good, I just want to hang out with you and you've blessed me so much or you've given me more than I can. It was just a driven heart that, that is just thankful and, and rejoicing. Now, now put yourself in J David's shoes. He, 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 could have, he could have been beside himself with all of the betrayal. But he wasn't going to let the actions of man steal him from the worship of God. And that's an important issue. Because sometimes you go to church and you're all upset because of people. And worship just goes out the window. Right? You praise things like, God, break their teeth in their mouth. That's in the Bible, I know. But worship is gone because it's anger and it's bitterness. God didn't do that. He's a, a good God. No, no. I'm going to sacrifice and sing and, and I'm going to see you as you are, I know you're my deliverer, and I'm going to see the end of what you do. I'm going to praise your name. And he didn't allow the actions of others to, to eliminate or, or, to, or to minimize his relationship with the Lord. Right? I'm going to, I'm going to praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. You know, we, we work real hard at, at, at maintaining a, a name that, that, that is good. We, want, we strive to have a good name. Let me just say this to you. God's name is well-established. He's got a long history of being a good God. You won't find anything else in your Bibles. He's a deliverer. So I'm going to praise you. And notice verse 7. David was motivated by the fact that, that his deliverance had come from God's hand. He could be counted upon. David ran from Saul. He played tag with his soldiers for, for years to come over hill and dale. And yet David was safe. And the men David sang that night like they had never sung before. David had not allowed the betrayal, or, the betrayal of others, or if you will, the unkindest cut of all, to turn his hope away from the Lord. So look, when people let you down, and it happens, doesn't it? God will lift you up. When everyone else fails you, he won't. He won't. But if you allow the failures of others to turn you from the joy and the peace that God has to give you, then you're really dishonoring the faithfulness of God. You be faithful to him because he's faithful to you. Don't you treat him like others have treated you. Go the other way. You can count on him, can't you? I like the lessons. All of seven verses. But you just got to know the background, don't you? So when you go to study the Psalms, read that top part first. And then go and read the Psalms because you'll, and especially in the second book, there, the, the books of Psalms is in several books. They're marked that way in your Bible, especially the second book of Psalms. Almost all of them are explained to you so you can get a good running start. We've been teaching 
psalms on Sunday morning for the last, I think since the 1st of January. And I was only going to do 15 psalms because, you know, we used to just go through a book. Now I'm stuck to December doing this. But I'm learning a lot, so hopefully the people are as well. Father, tonight as we sit together, it is with great joy that we consider, on the one hand, the suffering that we suffer at the hands of men, whether it is intentional or not. On the other hand, that the betrayal that men can bring to our lives is nothing compared to the faithfulness that we find with you and the unkindest cut of all, this this turning of family and friends against us for whatever reason. It's certainly because they don't know the Lord, or that wouldn't happen. But we have a faithful God who is a righteous God. And so we can come to worship, we can come to worship together, we can lift up our hands and voices, and we can do so with great joy because our God is faithful. He deserves all that we give him and more. And Father, that's our our prayer tonight. 